Well, good morning, church at Harpeth Heights. I am grateful to be joining you for worship this morning. Brandon, man, I just want to say thanks again for the opportunity to, to preach this morning. I love teaching God's Word. And I also want to say my wife and I are extremely thankful for your family. The way that your wife loves on Heather and supports and encourages her. And the, the friend you've been to me, how you've supported me on this journey for a pastor and all that. We are extremely grateful for you and your family. Well, church family, whether you are joining us online or if you're here in the worship center, I want to ask you to go ahead and grab your Bibles. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be taking a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. To say 2020 has been a year of uncertainty is not only to what? State the obvious, but it's an understatement. But for me, in every area of my life, this year has been defined by uncertainty. Professionally speaking, I remember back in March when I was at a missions uh, church planning conference, and I got a phone call from our pastor, and he said, hey, we, we, we've seen the first case of COVID-19 in Williamson County, and we need to be prepared to pivot. Little did we know that seven days later that the leadership would make the recommendation to close all of our campuses for your health and your well-being but we thought it was only going to be for two weeks. Two weeks turned into four weeks. Four weeks turned into six weeks. And then we were told we we're going to reopen Easter Sunday, but it didn't happen. Then we were told we'd reopen Memorial Day, but it didn't happen. No one knew that we were going to be closed for 20 weeks. Now, for me, throughout those 20 weeks, I really began to wrestle with uncertainty. When will we reopen? What if we don't reopen? Will I have to go and get another job? How I will provide for my family if we do reopen, what will worship look like? Will anybody come? How do we keep our people safe? Uncertainty. Personally speaking, uh, much like many of you, my wife and I had to shift in March from working a full-time job in an office to shifting our, to our home office while also being the primary educator of our, our five-year-old and our six-year-old. They were in junior kindergarten and kindergarten at the time. We were trying to figure out how we were going to teach them to read and to write while also juggling ministry. And she's a reading specialist. How are we going to figure all that out? And we thought it was going to be for two weeks. But we began to wrestle with uncertainty. Will they ever go back? If they do go back, will it be safe? When they return, will they be behind? Because we weren't able to give the time, energy, and effort to, to reading and writing what they needed to grow. And then we, we made the decision this summer to, to put our house on the market. And we did that because we wanted to get closer to our community, to our work, to our kids' school. We thought this would be a seamless transition, but little did we know our house would sell in 18 hours. Yes, 18 hours. They gave us 30 days to get out of a house that we've been in for nine years. And then for the next eight weeks, we put 12 different offers on homes that were all rejected. And so we had to move in with friends in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. There was eight of us in a home. Four of them were under the age of seven. And with each passing day, we wrestled with uncertainty. Did we make the wrong decision to sell our house? Where are we going to live next? Are we able to afford in this market the house that we need to, for our family? Are we going to have to pull our stuff out of storage and, and then move into an Airbnb in an apartment? Well, I mean, what does that look like? And then just three weeks ago, the, the Lord provided for us a new home, and we've been remodeling that home. And yours truly is, 
It's not a super handy man, but I've been doing the best that I can. And I was laying floors in the kitchen. And guess what? I hit a water line. And it looked like Old Faithful there in our kitchen. And it destroyed our hardwoods and flooded our kitchen. And I sat there and I saw that pipe. Water just gushing out. And I thought to myself, is this not 2020 in a nutshell? You never know what's going to happen. Uncertainty. And I tell you that story because if we were to go around this room this morning, you could share with me similar stories of how you don't know what you're going to do next. I mean, we've been in the middle of a global pandemic for eight months. We've been talking about a vaccine. We don't know when or if a vaccine will become available. We just finished an election and some states have not even called a winner. So there's some uncertainty about who our next president will be. Uncertainty is all around us. And here's my question to you. As the people of God, as the church, how do we stand firm, be devoted to the mission of God in the midst of an unstable, ever-changing world? When you feel isolated, you feel alone, you feel defeated, you're discouraged, how do you muster up enough strength to move forward in uncertainty? Well, in today's text, we see that the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church at Thessalonica, and he gives them four foundational truths to encourage them to stand firm. As is our custom in our church, I want to invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word as we read. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, give thanks to God. Let's pray. Jesus, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. You may have a seat. So before we jump into this passage, let me give you some context. I'm a, I'm a really big context person. So as I mentioned, Paul, the apostle, is writing a letter to the church at Thessalonica. And this is his second letter to the church. And Thessalonica in Paul's day is a bustling commercial city of about 100,000 people. And that church is under intense persecution. And, though, and that persecution leads to these erroneous ideas about the end of the world. And so they begin to wrestle with uncertainty. When will Jesus come back? What will happen in the rapture? What will the judgment look like? And then finally, is my faith secure? So Paul writes this letter not only to address some of those key questions, but to encourage them to stand firm in the midst of uncertainty. 
And he gives them four truths. And I want us to look at the first one in verse 13. But we ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. So here's the first truth. We serve a God who loves us. We serve a God who loves us. Now, what does Paul mean by that term love? I think we would all agree that that term is used very flippantly in the culture that we live in. I mean, just the other day I was driving down I-65 and I saw a sign that said, Love God, love people, love Smashville. Now, what does that even mean? Like, is my, my love for the predator supposed to equate to my love of God and people? Well, no. What is Paul saying here? If you study the New Testament, we see that there are three Greek words. The New Testament was written in Greek for love. The first one is eros, E-R-O-S, eros, love. This type of love love is, is romantic, it's sensual, it's intimate. It's the type of love we see between a husband and a wife. So it's very physical and sensual. And if you watch any movies or you read any of those great Nicholas Sparks novels, you'll see this is the type of love that is depicted. Now, let me ask you this question. I can't see you at home, but you can raise your hand. Raise your hand if you've ever seen the movie The Notebook. Okay. All right. There's an iconic scene in this movie that really encapsulates this idea of erotic love. It's, it's Noah, who was played by Ryan Gosling. Allie, who is played by Rachel McAdams, they're in a very intense discussion. And Allie runs out. I mean, it is pouring down rain, torrential rain. And he picks her up, he grabs her, and they share this rain-soaked kiss. You know the scene that I'm talking about? That's erotic love. But that is not the type of love that Paul is talking about in this passage. The second type of love we see in the New Testament is phileo. It's where the city of Philadelphia gets its name. It's a type of brotherly love. It's, it's this idea that two people share a love or a bond over like a, a common activity or an interest. Think about like Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Okay? The greatest team ever, in my opinion, was the Chicago Bulls. They won six championships. Those two gentlemen shared a brotherly love for one another. They had a, the, the same goal of winning a championship, and they bonded over that. Or maybe that's not your team. So this year you watched the NBA in a bubble and you saw LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Those two gentlemen shared a brotherly love with one another as they worked towards the goal of a championship. But that's not the type of love that Paul is talking about. The third type of love that we see in Scripture is agape love. And I want you to write this definition down. Agape means this. It's to love the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. To love the undeserving despite disappointment and rejection. And C.S. Lewis says it this way. He said, is it a love that brings forth caring regardless of your circumstances? And the difference between agape... Then the other two loves we talked about this morning is that it is self-sacrificial and it's unconditional. And the greatest example is who? It's Jesus Christ himself because he gave his life for you and for me. And I don't know about you, but for some time now, I've had a hard time wrapping my brain around the love of Jesus. 
Because in the culture we live in, we experience conditional love, right? And conditional love is based on performance. It's, I will love you if you do X or you do Y, or I will love you only if you love me. It's very conditional. And Paul says, that's not the type of love that's talking about here. It's agape love. It's unconditional love. And here's what I love about agape. Jesus, hear me say this, he doesn't love you for who you are. He loves you for who he is. People ask me all the time, how does Jesus have the capacity to love you unconditionally? My response is he doesn't love you for who he is because he is love. He loves you for who he is. And I don't know what you walked in here with this morning, what's on your plate, what type of week you had, but I know this, you can stand firm in the midst of uncertainty because Jesus unconditionally loves you. And there's nothing you could ever do to escape that love. And I don't know about you, but that's comforting and that gives me the peace that I need to get myself out of the bed in the morning. So the first truth that we see here is God unconditionally loves you. Look at the second, also found in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. What's Paul saying here? The second truth we see this morning is before you believed, God chose you. Now hear me, I know some of you tuned me out because I, I use the phrase, God chose you. And here's what I want to say. My role here this morning, Brandon, is not to pull the pin on the theological grenade and let you clean it up later, all right? So if you don't agree with what I'd say, then you can email me at bowen at harpathites.com, okay? (laughs) And I get it. There has been theologies built out around this idea of election. But here's what Paul is saying. In God's sovereignty, he chose you. In God's sovereignty, he chose you. And Oksana read the passage earlier. He elaborates on this idea in Ephesians 1 because he says, God chose you before the beginning of the world. And what that means is this. Before you were knitted together in your mother's womb, before you were the twinkling in your father's eye, in essence, God chose you before there was a you. And some of you may be sitting here this morning where he didn't choose me. If you, if, if you know who, who, who I really am, then you, you would know there's no way he could choose me to be part of his team. Here's what I would tell you. God doesn't choose you because of a skill or a trait that you exhibit or demonstrate. He doesn't choose you because you're CEO in your company or you're a great athlete or you're a great preacher. He chooses you because of his unmerited grace. Grace means unmerited grace favor. He chooses you because of his grace. And that begs the question, what did he choose you for? What does Paul say here? He says he chose you for the first fruits of salvation. So before you believed in Jesus, he chose you for salvation. And again, as we're walking into the holiday season, I know people struggle with depression and isolation and loneliness. I had a conversation this morning with a young lady in my office, and here's what she said. 
She said, no one cares about me. I'm not high up on anybody's priority list. And I told her, I said, you know what? God has created you in the image of God. He has signed and stamped you in his image, and he has chose you for salvation. Lean into that truth this morning. Because you're a child of the king. And here's what I want you to understand about salvation. Yes, God chose us before the beginning of the world, but you and I very much have a responsibility to play. And, and, and let me kind of give you a picture of what salvation looks like, because it involves three factors. And we see this in Scripture. We see it involves the Word of God. You have to proclaim the good news of the gospel so that people will respond. It includes the work of the Spirit. John 6, 14 says what? No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. And then it includes the will of man or woman. Three factors come into play in salvation. So let me, let, me, let me provide for you that picture. Go back. We're about to celebrate Christmas, and we're moving into the season of Advent. Think about the Christmas story, Mary. Let's take Mary. I think we would all agree that God chose Mary, right? He chose Mary from the beginning of the world to bear the Savior of the world. God, uh, Mary didn't choose God. God chose Mary. And then what happens in that story? He sends the angel Gabriel to be a messenger to proclaim the good news to Mary. So there we see the word of God. And Gabriel says what? You're going to bear a son. You're to give him the name Jesus. He will save the people from their sins. And then what happens next in that story? Mary objects. Uh, How can that be? I've never been with a man before. Like, how? Uh, Gabriel, like, I'm with you, but like, you lost me on that part. But did you notice what happened? God or Gabriel doesn't strong arm or manipulate or guilt Mary. We don't serve a God of manipulation. Mary has a choice to make. And she says, may it be done to me according to your will. And the act of her will was accepting God's offering. So you see all three factors are included for salvation. The word of God, the work of the spirit, and the will or responsibility of man and woman. And church, I want you to know that you can get out of bed in the morning, no matter how defeated or discouraged you are because of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. He has saved you And there are days I have to preach the gospel to myself. There are, I start throwing myself a pity party. And and and, in church, there are days that I feel defeated before my feet ever hits the floor in the morning. And in that moment, God reminds me of who he is. And he says, Matthew, you are chosen. I have saved you. Celebrate that. If we're not grateful for anything else this morning, is we can be grateful for the salvation that Jesus provided to us. So we see in this passage, we serve a God who loves you. We serve a God who has chosen you for salvation. Look at the third one. 
Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the third truth, and I love this one. This is my favorite one. If you're a Christ follower and you profess Jesus, Scripture tells us that you, you have an inheritance. Our hope is not in this world, but in the world to come. Our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ, not a leader, not an organization, not a person, but rather Jesus himself. And Paul says, listen to me. I understand that God chose you for salvation, and yet you have a responsibility. We know that you you choose Jesus, how? By believing and putting your faith in the gospel. And when you do that, you become a co-heir to the kingdom. And you and I know there's a day coming when Jesus will come to usher in his kingdom. And you and I can sit at his feet. We can celebrate and we can worship in all of his splendor, all of his glory. It's a beautiful thing. And guess what? There's no more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more grief. And I have more for that day this year than I ever have in my life. I long for that day. Where I can sit at the feet of Jesus. And I want you to know this. Over the last three years, I have dealt with a pretty substantial health issue. It's robbed me of my joy. Susan, I see you sitting here. I know pieces, bits and pieces of your journey, but I know you. There's probably been days you've been robbed of your joy because of cancer. But our hope is not in this world. It's in the world to come. And Paul says it this way. 2 Corinthians 4.17, my favorite verse, he says this. He says, my momentary light affliction is incomparable to the eternal weight of glory. What that says to you and to me is no matter what we're going through, no matter what type of persecution, no matter if you have a nagging illness or sickness, It's only for a season, and it is incomparable to what we receive on the other side. And I've clung to that verse over the last three years. Church family, I hope you find comfort and peace in the fact that you serve a God who's given you an inheritance where one day we will all gather together as saints, sit at his feet, and worship in his goodness. That's how we can stand firm in an unstable world. Because my hope is not in this world. And thank goodness, right? Thank goodness. This is not all there is. Look at the fourth truth. Verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. What's Paul saying here? He says, church at Harpeth Heights, you can stand firm by simply leaning into the word of God. That term traditions in Greek refers to God's word passed down from generation to generation to generation orally. You see, they didn't have the full complement of scripture like you and I have. They don't have the, the written word of God, but you and I do. And this is what I want to encourage you to do. Over the next seven days, spend 10 minutes reading God's word. 
Spend 10 minutes reading God's word. Why? Two reasons. God's word reveals to us the character and nature. It reveals to us his character and his nature. Not only do we see that he unconditionally loves us, that he is compassionate, that he is empathetic, but guess what? The most consistent thing we see in Scripture is God's faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness. So think about it. All those stories you may have learned as a child of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, in spite of their faithlessness, guess what? God was faithful. And I don't know about you. I'm speaking from experience here for me. But oftentimes I have to be reminded of God's past faithfulness to be assured of God's present faithfulness. Let me say that again. For me, oftentimes I have to be reminded of God's faithfulness, and it's found right here, to be assured of God's present faithfulness. That's the power of Scripture. The second reason that you and I should hold to the tradition of God's word, it helps us to discern what truth is and what truth is not. And I don't know about you, but over the last eight months, I've had a really difficult time determining what is true and what is false. And in the church in Thessalonica, they're in a culture of false teachings. They're surrounded by deceit and lies. And Paul says, listen, church, If you don't know and understand God's word, if you don't meditate on it, you will fall to those lies and deceit. The same can be said about me and you. If we don't know what God's word says, we will fall victim to the lies of our culture. Because God's word is inspired and errant. It's without error. And I know there are people in our congregation, can't speak for this one, who have put their trust in political leaders and the organizations like the CDC and the WHO and their families and their friends, and they have walked away unsatisfied, unfulfilled, anxious, and overwhelmed. All we need to do is put our trust and faith in this right here. The Word of God. Because it's the only truth that there is. So for the next seven days, I want to challenge you to dig in and meditate on God's word. I've heard Brandon say this multiple times in conversation with him. Nothing is going to rob him of his time with Jesus. Not sermon prep. Make sure this is a priority in your life. Sit with Jesus this week. The last two verses say this. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul ends by providing a prayer of encouragement. And then he says, hey church, this is where you come in. We've been in a series about the church He says, church family, you're not only to believe in the truth, you're supposed to demonstrate the truth. What my youth pastor used to say, let your actions match your passions. We, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of uncertainty, do not stop being the church. We do not stop being the church. Ministry still takes place. 
And I want to encourage you to be part of the mission of God. You see, our church's mission is this, is to engage the whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus anytime, anywhere, with anybody. There are multiple ways to do that. You can be involved in gospel conversations, praying for persons of peace, and then when the Lord reveals those people to you, having gospel conversations, yes, you want to have those at distance, masked up, you want to take every precaution necessary, but don't quit being the church. You can be involved in community or groups, Many of the the groups at our campus are meeting virtually. You need to be encouraged, supported, held accountable. Life is too hard to do it alone. So get involved in a group. And finally, I would say you need to be going or part of the mission. Susan mentioned a couple of ways this morning. You can be involved in the food pantry. You can be putting back $10 a week for the next 52 weeks so you can go on a mission journey. There are multiple ways to be involved in going, but Paul says, hey, it's not just enough to believe in the truth. You have to demonstrate the truth. And my prayer for you, for our congregation, is is that we will be salt and light in such a dark, dreary world. And we do that by demonstrating the love of Christ. My hope is this morning that you will walk away encouraged because you serve a God who loves you, who has chosen you for salvation, who has given you the opportunity to obtain the glory, be co-heirs in the kingdom, and one who has given you his word to discern what truth is and what truth is not, and then reveals to you his character.